It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 172, and this is your host, Chris Blanchard. Alan Gandelman raises 45 acres of crops at Main Street Farms in central New York State. With 20 employees in its eighth year in business, Main Street Farms sells through a CSA, farmer's market, and wholesale accounts. Main Street Farms got its start in 2011 with an acre of production and an aquaponics setup, so they've grown a lot in the last eight years. And Alan and I talk about the process of scaling up their operation and finding their way with different mixes of enterprises and marketing outlets and how that it's meshed with the meeting the needs of the people on the farm. We also dig into Main Street Farms' 42-week CSA, their acre of greenhouse production, and their new hemp enterprise, and how it all fits together into a coherent whole. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is generously supported by Haas Tools. Haas Tools is the complete solution for all your market farming tools and supplies. From wheel hose, precision seeders, heavy-duty seed trays, drip irrigation, and organic pest control, they've got you covered. Get free shipping and outstanding customer service at HaasTools.com. And by BCS America. BCS two-wheel tractors are versatile, maneuverable in tight spaces, lightweight for less compaction, and easy to maintain and repair on the farm. Gear-driven and built to last for decades of dependable service. BCSAmerica.com And by Vermont Compost Company, founded by organic crop-growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high-quality compost and compost-based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production. VermontCompost.com Alan Gandelman, welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast. Hey, Chris. It's uh, great to be here. Thanks so much for making the time to join us here. It's the middle of July when we're recording this, so it's not exactly lots of farmer downtime at this point in the year. So I really appreciate your carving out the time to, to talk to me. Absolutely. I'd like to start off by having you tell us about Main Street Farms, where you guys are located, how much you're doing, and what are you doing? Okay, so I started Main Street Farms about eight years ago as a small market garden. And now we are farming about 45 acres in production with 20-something employees. And we are located in central New York. So we are about half an hour from Ithaca, which is a nice college town, and half an hour from Syracuse, New York, and about three and a half hours from New York City. And so the farm is a diversified organic vegetable farm. We have CSA, where we have 300-something members. We sell the Syracuse Farmer's Market, and then we also do uh, bigger wholesale accounts now down to New York City. And when we first started out, I started the farm with a college friend of mine. His name is Bobcat. It was uh, seven years ago, and we started a little tiny market garden here in Central York. The city is Cortland, and we had a few greenhouses. I had bought an old abandoned flower nursery, so there was a house there, and couple greenhouses that were heated and some pots and just different things to kind of get us started. And the first year we were just selling at a tiny farmer's market and no CSA or anything like that. And we were doing transplants and a lot of those, you know, little things that you do with a one acre market garden. And we kept seeing the demand increase. And over the years we would, every year we would scale up. We started renting farmland we would think the first year we rented a second acre from our friends and then the year after that we rented three or four more acres and the year after that we probably were on 10 acres or so and three years ago we met I was looking for farmland to buy here in central New York and I got connected with 
uh, old farmer who was a cabbage seed breeder. His name is Don Reed. And he, if anyone out there has grown uh, or is growing storage number four cabbage, he's a breeder of storage number four and lots of other cabbage and broccoli and Brussels sprout varieties. And he had sold off his seed business, but kept the farm and was looking to keep it in farmland and find the next generation farmer to take it over. And so I met Don through a mutual friend and there's about 200 acres here and lots of greenhouses. And so we kind of have a long-term lease on the land and every year I've been kind of transitioning piece by piece into organic and scaling up the farm as necessary. So besides for that, that's kind of our big farm where all the field production is grown. We have almost 50,000 square feet of greenhouses and high tunnels spread across three sites. So we still have our original site where it was like the original market garden. And then we have an urban farm in downtown Cortland that's about an acre. And that is now just covered with three big high tunnels. And so between those three, we have all of our greenhouses and high tunnels. So we do, you know, year round growing in the wintertime lots of salad greens and spinach and stuff like that for our CSA. Over an acre undercover is a lot of ground to have under plastic. It is. You know, every year we're building these new high tunnels through the NRCS program and we're building them ourselves. The new high tunnels we're building are all 34 by 144. So it adds up fast and it required a lot of management, you know, and a lot of different learning and from our original high tunnels, we have some 30 by 96s that we built maybe four years ago, and we've been using them straight for four years, and we're starting to see that kind of, you know, soil quality issues and stuff like that. So now that we have enough under plastic, we can really start rotating through the tunnels and rebuilding that soil health. It seems to me that a lot of times when I talk to farms that are up in that 45 acres of production range that they don't really have a lot of ground under plastic. You know, you sometimes they'll have they'll have a little bit here and there, but certainly not an acre because that becomes a really substantial enterprise for your farm. Are you managing those high tunnels with different equipment and different practices than what you're doing outdoors? Yeah, we manage them differently. You know, we have a small little tractor Kubota with a rototiller on it and like a mini chisel plow that we can run through the high tunnels. And the main reason we have the high tunnels at this point is really for our winter production and our shoulder season production. In the summer, we do grow heirloom tomatoes and cucumbers and peppers in them, but really we have them for our CSA. Part of the scaling up of the farm over the years has really been to figure out how to extend the season in central New York. And when it comes to the CSA, how to keep our members going year round. Because what we noticed was that, you know, the retention for CSAs are kind of low. We were hovering around 50% and we were letting go of our customers. And we had a small winter CSA that was kind of biweekly. But by the time that was ending in February, let's say, and then our season wasn't starting up again until June, it's really easy to lose contact with those people. And those people kind of let their connection to the farm last, maybe. And so... Last year, our CSA ran for about 42 weeks out of 52 weeks. And a lot of that is because we grow a lot of storage crops and we have a lot of space to store those crops. And because we have a lot of ground under plastic where we can grow a lot of spinach and a lot of kale and 
some of the, you know, lettuces over the winter and keep people interested with their CSA share all winter long. And so we approach our high tunnel management for that specific winter production. So even if the tomatoes, for example, are still doing good and it's the fall, we still take them out and we turn the tunnels over with the tractor as quick as possible and get them ready for winter greens because that is way more valuable to us than the heirloom tomatoes in the fall. Do you use the high tunnels in the wintertime for wholesale sales as well, or is that strictly for your CSA? The high tunnels in the winter are strictly for our CSA and our farmer's market. Our wholesale to New York City especially is mostly storage crops, beets and carrots, and then we also grow a lot of cabbage for a local sauerkraut company. We used to grow wholesale for restaurants in the region. You know, we deliver our CSA from Syracuse down to Binghamton. And so we covered a decent geographic area. And so we're working with a lot of restaurants. But as the farm has scaled, we've actually dropped all of our restaurant and small grocery store accounts. And we're only focusing on wholesale customers who can handle large volumes. That's really interesting. That seems kind of off trend for what I'm hearing from a lot of people that I'm talking to. That is kind of off trend. You know, it all really depends on your market, how much money you're getting price per pound and what your farm crew wants to do. You know, the way we really built up the farm is with a focus on the people that work here and labor and keeping them employed year round. That is really important for me and Bobcat is to keep, we have really amazing employees and we're, and they're having kids and families and to just give them these seasonal jobs where you're working 70 hours a week in the summertime and then nothing, almost nothing in the winter. One, it's really hard on your body. Once you get into your thirties, there's a point where it's unsustainable physically, and then it also becomes unsustainable financially. And so we're really trying to change the whole model of the farm to kind of meet our people needs more than just, oh, yeah, let's grow a ton of greens for these restaurants in the summer. And then in the wintertime, we'll just take off and leave for two months. You know, that didn't really work for us and it didn't really work for our employees to do that method. And also, you know, the other thing when it comes to markets, we started as a small market garden. And one thing that I forgot to say was we have uh, an aquaponic system where we raise fish and uh, microgreens. So it's one of the biggest in New York state and it's also certified organic, which there's very few of those. And when we started the market garden, we were in that model of high-end greens selling to restaurants and grocery stores and the little packages of lettuce, clamshells and microgreen clamshells. But our markets couldn't really pay the prices that we wanted to keep it as a sustainable enterprise. And so unless we started selling all of that into New York City, we just didn't really see the farm being able to grow on that market garden kind of high value greens trend. The other issue that we had with that, and this is a little bit off the topic, the other issue that we had with the high value greens is before I was a farmer, I was a teacher. And one of the reasons I got into farming from being a a high school teacher is that the school food was really terrible. And one of my goals was to grow food and get into school cafeterias and to teach children about eating healthy and having food access and being able to afford vegetables. Because a lot of the kids I was teaching were low-income families and they were all on free and reduced lunch. And so sometimes at school, that was their best meal. 
And so I like the aquaponic system because we cited it right in town and people can visit and it's very educational. But at the end of the day, those high value greens are kind of unaffordable to a lot of people and they don't provide all the nutrition of kind of a full diet and what you would need for vegetables. And the things that we realized over the years is that you could do a lot of field production and grow a lot of beets and carrots and cabbage and all greens outside and sell them for a lot more affordable prices to our local community. And that seemed to be actually way more beneficial to the city we live in, which is a city of about 20,000 people than growing high value greens for fancy restaurants, you know, whether in Syracuse or Ithaca or New York City. That makes sense. So you're still doing the aquaponics. We have the aquaponics system still. We actually just shut the system off for this summer because we don't have anyone left who wants to run it. And we were doing it ourselves and it requires a lot of labor, you know, just to seed the trays and harvest and take care of the fish. And so we ran out of our fish in the spring and we haven't restocked it yet with fish. We're going to revisit it probably this fall and decide what we want to do with the aquaponic system because the scale of our farm has outchased what the aquaponic system could really produce for our CSA. Now we grow a lot of pea shoots in it because the pea shoots are great all year round. We can give them to the CSA, we can sell them to the farmer's market. But past doing like we were doing very high intensive production in there because that space is very valuable. So there's a lot of labor in you know, turning those quote-unquote beds over as many times as possible. And so it requires a lot of management, a lot of skill, and we just don't have anyone left, you know, to work in that aquaponics system. We've tried hiring some people over the last year, but haven't really found someone with the skills to run it because there's a big learning curve. There's a lot of training. You're taking care of fish. There's, you know, pH with the water. There's nutrients. There's the greens production. When you're growing indoor in a big greenhouse like that with grow lights and heat, and it's nonstop for years and years, pests become an issue. And so it really takes a high level of skill to meet the production that has to come out of it to make it worth paying for the heat and the lights and the labor. Interesting, because it's something that, I feel like a lot of people are interested in aquaponics. It's certainly something that's gotten a lot of press, but it's not something that you, it's not something that I feel like we see a lot of commercial producers succeeding at over the long haul. Mm -hmm. They're definitely out there. I know some commercial producers who are succeeding. The reason we don't know about them is because they sign contracts with the grocery store chain or something like that. And they just funnel all their production to one or two outlets. The bigger ones aren't going to get the farmer's market selling green. And a lot of the aquaponic systems and the hydroponic systems are moving from greenhouses, which I like to work in because of the sun, into huge buildings right outside cities. So they become indoor vertical farms. And at that point, you're working inside of a, basically a factory. And, you know, that just doesn't appeal to me personally. But those ones are doing okay because they have their contracts and they're not selling direct to consumer, which is why we don't hear about them. And they're pumping out their greens and, you know, they've kind of got their small market on lockdown and that's why we don't hear from them. So in your marketing setup, roughly how does that break down between your CSA, your farmer's market and your, your large wholesale accounts in terms of percentages? 
So our CSA accounts for about 20%, 25% of our sales. The other 25% the farmer's market, then we're probably another 30% in our wholesale customers. And then the final percentage this year is coming from our hemp crop. So that's an interesting breakdown to me. So about a third, a third, and a third in terms of your vegetable crops going to those three main marketplaces. Right. So it is about a third, a third, and a third. And the reason why we have it set up that way right now is because it makes sense for our labor and keeping our labor steady. It makes sense because it keeps us tied into our community, which is really important for me and Bobcat. And it provides kind of the financial stability that the wholesale markets don't. Our wholesale sales to New York City don't start until September or October, and they run into June. And so when we're growing those crops, like the carrots and the beets all summer long, if we were only doing the wholesale accounts, we wouldn't have all of that kind of cash flow going throughout the year. And the CSA kind of gives us a nice little kick in the fall or in the, uh, in the spring, and then it keeps us going throughout the summer, and then the wholesale crops kind of kick in. So it just keeps the farm balanced for the year. And it seems to be working right now. And there's a caveat, I say right now, because me and Bobcat joke about this all the time, is that our farm looks different every single year. It's never been the same from one year to the next. Every year we're making changes. Every year we are scaling up in some sort of way. Every year we are very consciously choosing what customers we're going to drop, who are we going to stop working with. Like this year we dropped all of our restaurant accounts. And that was a really hard decision to make. But we've needed to make those changes to streamline to make our lives easier. Tell me a little bit more about how your CSA actually operates. So our CSA runs in a very traditional way and a non-traditional way. The traditional part of the CSA is that we take early signups in February and people have the option of paying upfront for the whole season. That's the traditional part of the CSA. And those deliveries start in June and they'll go through November. And then we'll ask if they want to be part of the winter CSA, which will run from November until we pretty much run out of food. So we still have that traditional base of the CSA. The non-traditional part is that we use Farmigo for our CSA software management systems. And actually for anyone who's used Farmigo, they probably know Carly, who is their farm support person and she actually is our CSA manager now and has a ton of other jobs on the farm. I'm going to just jump right in here and just say that Carly was also has been doing all of the social media posting, kind of managing all of the web work for the Farmer to Farmer podcast for the last two years as well. Right. So she's extremely talented and so she manages our website also, Chris, and she manages our Facebook groups and our social media and all of our, she makes all of our marketing material. And so Carly started working with me about a year and a half ago. And she, after working with Farmigo for about five years, she's just working with so many farms around the country. And she lives in Ithaca, which is right down the road from the farm. And she said, you know, I want to come and work on the farm and help grow the CSA and help figure out how to make this thing more sustainable. 
And so I said, sure. And she had a lot of ideas and a lot of things around CSA, but also marketing to restaurants. And so I just gave her a place to experiment with. And so what we decided to do last year was to turn part of the CSA into a weekly payment system using Farmigo because it has those capabilities. And when we did that, so people could pay by the week and they could also put their accounts on hold at any time and not get charged. And I think that is part of the non-traditional CSA part that we're doing that there's a lot of other farms in the country might not be doing. So let's say we have 350 members at any given time. Someone's gone on vacation for three weeks. They put their account on hold and we don't charge them for those three weeks. And now we only have 349 members. (laughs) And so people have really responded to that. One of the reasons we came to that is we do a lot of those end of year surveys and we talk to our customers. And when you're dealing with maybe not a high end market like New York City and people who have a limited food budget, when they were missing one or two weeks out of the whole year, they were canceling their shares because that lost 20 or $50 was so wasteful to them that they just couldn't bring themselves to be a member of our CSA. And now on the flip side, we have people who join and they only pick up 10 out of 22 weeks. They never put their accounts on hold and they don't care about the money, whatever. It's no big deal to them. They like supporting the farm. But we had a lot of people who those missed weeks were just a huge barrier. So we took away that barrier for them and we let them pay by the week and let them not get charged for the weeks they weren't there. And it's been a really, really positive response. The other thing we did we were only having two size shares. Now we have a third size share, the small CSA share, which is $18 a week. And that also is due to kind of customer feedback. And then the final part of the CSA, I don't know, this is kind of a, maybe a philosophical part of our shares. For a long time, me and Bobcat were packing the shares to make sure that the financial value was in that bag of vegetables. Right. So we want to make sure if they're paying twenty nine dollars a week for it, they got thirty five dollars a week or whatever of vegetables that they were going to go shop in the grocery store. And what we realized over the last year, two years, was that most people didn't value the CSA the same way that us as the farmers were valuing the shares. What they were valuing and what we found out, again, with the surveys and just talking to members is that they were valuing their connection to me and Bobcat. They were valuing knowing that they were supporting a small farm and they were supporting their local food economy. And so their values were actually different than our values. And we were giving them so many vegetables that at a certain point, the CSA isn't that profitable, one. And two, you know, they would buy our veggie lover share and then they would throw out vegetables. They might throw out 10%, 20% of the food and then they have veggie guilt, and then they want a smaller share, or they don't re-sign up. And so what we've done is we've made our, all of our shares smaller, and we've added value instead to the CSA through videos. Carly and Bobcat do like a weekly CSA unboxing video. We've added farm events. So now we started bringing people onto the farm for, we had a salad party a couple weeks ago where we had the CSA members come, and we took them in the field, and they harvested lettuce. And then Bobcat loved to teach people how to cook. And so he did this whole demo on making homemade salad dressings because we grow a lot of lettuce and a lot of greens. And if you can't make good salads, 
you're not going to get through a CSA share every week. And so he did this whole thing on salad dressings. And then we have a farm barbecue. And then we have, we're doing a, you pick pumpkins. And so we're trying to add value through other ways, through the connection side to the actual farm, rather than just say, well, here's a huge bag of vegetables and that's all you get. And this is the first year we're really focusing on that shift. And so far, the reaction of our members has been great. It's super positive. We've only had one complaint that the small share was too small. And the small share only has four to five items in it for $18. So, you know, you can go to the grocery store and get cheaper organic food. But we have stopped comparing ourselves to the food co-op or to the prices at Whole Foods or here we have Wegmans because we're not growing for that market. Like that's not what we're doing. And so we really had to adjust our philosophical idea and our vision of, you know, how we wanted to interact with our members. And so that's been a huge change for us this year. I really like that idea of focusing on the other value that's in your CSA share beyond just the vegetables themselves. Yeah, it's been a difficult thing to do because it's hard to find out what the other values are for our customers. And I'm sure every place in the country is going to be a little bit different. Once we found that out, then we had to figure out how are we going to create that value? You know, Carly and Bobcat have done a really, really good job of creating that value with the education side. We have like cooking videos. You know, right now Bobcat is in the farm kitchen doing a kale Caesar salad video because there's always a lot of kale. And so teaching people and giving them that value through education. And I used to be a high school teacher and Bobcat used to spent five years as an outdoor environmental educator. And so we both have this basis of teaching like built into us. And so everything we do, it really does kind of that comes out in the farm, like teaching people how to use the vegetable, teaching people about farming. We do tons of farm tours. You know, we have all the local universities bring classes here. Local high schools bring their classes here. And so we really tried to reach out that way and create that kind of connection to the farm. Even though, you know, half of our CSA, we are delivering those pre-packed boxes or we use bags, not boxes, but we're delivering pre-packed shares to offices and coffee shops and schools. And so we don't have the connection when we're just dropping those bags off for them. The other half of the CSA, we have a local brewery where we do like a farm style pickup. It's more of a free choice market style CSA pickup, about 100 people. And that one's great because we get to connect to those 100 members every single week. But, you know, the other members, we don't ever see, we don't know their names. And so making those connections and bringing them onto the farm, I think is really important. And it's the first year we're doing it like for real and putting a lot of effort into it. So we won't really know the effect of the member retention of that until next year. So tell me a little bit about your farmer's market, because my my understanding from what you said earlier is you've got just the one farmer's market there in Syracuse, and that's accounting for about a third of your overall vegetable sales in the course of a year. Yes. So the farmer's market in Syracuse is a pretty big market. It's a year-round market. So we're there 50 weeks out of the year. And there's about 20,000 people who come through that market on a Saturday. So there's a lot of people there. And it's not a producer-only market. It is one of these huge markets. There's about 400 vendors spread across five buildings. 
and people can resell vegetables. You know, you can buy whatever you want there. There's even a little section that's more like a flea market. And so just because of the mass amount of people there, we have a lot of customers who come through that market. Now, that was last year's farmer's market sales. What we've noticed this year already from last year over the last six months, there's been a 20% or 30% decline in our sales at that market. Bobcat and I were just trying to figure this out over the last few weeks. Like we're bringing home a ton of vegetables and, you know, what's going on. And some of our farmer friends in Ithaca think that these kinds of markets, the local food farmer's market thing might have peaked. And this might just be kind of a slow decline on how many people are buying produce or meat or whatever that's local and organic at farmer's markets because there's just more and more of that available through grocery stores, food co-ops. There's more CSAs, you know, kind of popping up. And then you're also having to deal with the Blue Apron and the different home delivery services that are around. Do you have thoughts about your continued participation in the farmer's market? Is that something you anticipate that you'll keep doing or anything that you're trying to do to counteract that trend? I think a lot about the farmer's market and what to do. We've been doing farmer's markets for the past seven years. And this is the first year where I personally don't want to go anymore. I'm just tired of waking up at 4.30 in the morning on a Saturday and going to the market. It's too much for me personally. So I'm starting to lean away from the market. Bobcat, you know, he really does the market. He brings an employee or two every week. And so he likes doing it for now. But if our sales keep decreasing at this rate, we will absolutely consider not going to the farmer's market anymore and increasing our CSA. And our goal with the CSA is to keep it growing. Last year, I think we had around 200 something members. And so we're really thinking about growing the CSA into a sustainable size. We're not sure what that number is. We can handle a lot of shares, but as the farmer's markets decrease, our CSA sales will increase and that is much better for the farm. The farmer's markets are hard on farmers and on farms. There's a lot of waste and there's just a lot to do to get ready and you're giving up the whole Saturday. And for us, we're giving up whole Saturdays 50 weeks out of the year because of the year-round indoor heated market in the winter. And so it definitely gets tiring. And then on kind of round out the marketing front then, for wholesale, you said that you're only doing large wholesale accounts now. So what kinds of people are you selling to for that? Are you going through distributors or is it large grocery stores? What does that look like? So our large wholesale accounts right now are restaurant chains, like these like salad bar chains that are popping up everywhere. And they have multiple locations and all they do is serve kind of fresh grain bowls or salad bowls. So they're going through a lot of vegetables. And we deal directly with the companies, you know, the restaurant company, and they have their own distributor. So what we do is we send the vegetables to their distributor, either in New York City or New Jersey. And from there, they break down our pallets and then they bring the vegetables to each individual restaurant, you know, that last mile thing for us. And so that's how we're dealing with those customers. And also we work with schools. So one of the original ideas with to get into school districts and we do also sell vegetables to maybe 15 different schools and those are not large wholesale customers but they're just kind of part of the mission and the values that the farm has is to get as much produce into local schools as possible 
And are the schools that you're selling to primarily right there in Cortland, or are those also in Syracuse and Ithaca? Those are mostly in the southern tier of the state, so more in the Binghamton area. So, Alan, you've got the farmer's market going year-round. You've got the CSA going, I think you said, 42 weeks of the year. You've got these winter sales going for these these large wholesale accounts. Tell me what kind of infrastructure you've got, because central New York is not exactly the kind of place that you want to be washing carrots in December if you don't have the right setup. Right. And so that has always been a big challenge. When we first started, you know, we started like everyone else, then easy up tents in the greenhouse and we moved to a garage and we moved to a barn and none of those things are working because washing carrots throughout the winter in New York is really hard and lettuce greens were freezing and stuff. And uh, two years ago, a year and a half ago, because we are located only a mile from the city of Cortland, instead of building a whole new pack shed on the farm, which would have been really, really expensive, we rented a warehouse in downtown Cortland on Main Street, actually, and it's about 4,000 square feet, and it has beautiful concrete floors, and it's insulated, and it's heated, and we put in a commercial kitchen, and there's a bathroom there. So we were able to get GAP certified because of that infrastructure, which really opened up some of these bigger wholesale accounts. And so having a building where you can have a forklift and everything is on pallets and being able to pull the farmer's market truck in there in the winter and get it loaded up and go to the market has really been huge. We can pack CSA shares. There's good lighting. The water pressure is amazing because we're on city water. So we have unlimited water for washing, which when you're doing a lot of beets and carrots or lettuce and you're filling tanks of water, that also really helps. And so now people can actually work comfortably year round and not be freezing their hands off throughout the winter. You mentioned that that warehouse space is is about a mile away from your farm that's there in Cortland. How distant are your other farm locations from each other? The furthest one is just a 10-minute drive. 10-minute drive in a pickup truck. Yeah, 10-minute drive in a pickup truck, exactly. A little bit further on a tractor. (laughs) Well, we don't bring the tractors to the other locations. Well, there's one that's a mile down the road, and we drive the little tractor with the tiller to that location. But the further one, we just do everything there by hand or rototillers. So we don't bother bringing the tractors over there. So that must not be a whole lot of ground then if you're not bothering to bring the tractors over there. No, that location has our aquaponic system and then also like a couple high tunnels. So it's not a ton too. That was our first kind of market garden area. So there's not a lot of soil to till or to work. And then when we were chatting before the show, you mentioned that you do quite a bit of value added processing as well for your CSA. Yes, we do. We have a commercial kitchen in our warehouse and we share that with our friends who have a sauerkraut company. And so we have all the equipment there. And what we realized last year when we made this very conscious effort to run the CSA for as long as we possibly could throughout the winter, we started doing things like making pestos and tomato sauces and freezing it all and building up our stock for the winter to give our winter shares not only fresh greens every week, but also a value-added item every week with the storage vegetables. And so we spend a lot of time in the summer making these products. We actually have a farm chef who cooks the whole farm lunch every day. So we feed all of our employees every day. And he's also our delivery driver. 
And then when he's not doing those two things, he's doing the value added stuff. And that has really helped with the winter CSA. And the other thing we do throughout the winter, we started experimenting with kind of the fresh cut items. So we're giving people, if you're not getting a frozen item this week or sauerkraut, you're getting cubed butternut squash. You're getting a Napa cabbage stir fry mix that's all pre-chopped and ready to cook. You just throw it in the pan and make a stir fry. You're getting pre-chopped and pre-cubed beets and carrots as like roasting vegetable mixes. So if you want a quick, easy meal, you have something to just make and you're cutting down on your prep time for the winter. And so we have it planned out that every single week in the wintertime, there is one value-added product for 20 weeks or whatever it will end up being this year. Great. That's a really nice nice feature to add to the CSA. You must have had to go through a licensing process to be able to do that, right? Yeah. In New York State, it's through the Department of Ag and Markets, and it's called the 20C Commercial Kitchen. So that's the license we have for all those products. And we're also, I think I mentioned before, but we're GAP certified. And then in New York State, there's another program called New York State Ronin Certified, which we have also. So we have all of the proper certifications and licenses. You know, when you get to a certain size and you get certain exposure in the market and so many, you're dealing with so many people, it becomes difficult to fly under the radar. Right. Now, you guys must have bumped up against some stuff with uh, the Food Safety Modernization Act with the Produce Safety Rule, too, I'm guessing, from the scale of your operation. Has what you've done for GAPS and for the New York State program, has that taken care of what you needed for the Produce Safety Rule? You know, honestly, I assume so. I haven't been dealing with the Produce Safety Rule just because we're GAPS certified, and I've been kind of watching that from a distance and just seeing how they were going to approach it and enforce it. And so right now we're just GAP certified and we're just kind of watching that to see what's going to happen. Fair enough. All right. With that, Alan, I think this is a good spot for us to stop, take a quick break, get a word from a couple of sponsors, and then we'll be right back with Alan Gandelman from Main Street Farms in Cortland, New York. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by Haas Tools. Haas Tools is the complete solution for all your market farming tools and supplies. Keep rows weed-free with their time-tested, American-made wheel hose and the best wheel hoe attachments. Their precision seeders have a proven seed plate designed for planting a wide variety of seeds. Grow the best transplants with their heavy-duty PropTech seed trays and keep your crops healthy with their drip irrigation and fertilizer injection systems. Haas also provides a comprehensive selection of conventional and OMRI-certified pest control products at the most affordable prices. Free shipping and outstanding customer service. Shop online or request a free catalog at haastools.com. And by BCS America. BCS two-wheel tractors are often mistaken for just a rototiller, but they are truly a superior piece of farming equipment. Engineered and built in Italy where small farms are a way of life, BCS tractors are built to standards of quality and durability generally expected of real agricultural equipment, the kind of dependability that every farm needs. I've worked with BCS tractors for over 24 years, and I wouldn't consider anything else for my small tractor needs. And I am not the only fan. More than 1.5 million people in 50 countries have discovered the advantages of owning Europe's most popular two-wheel tractor. And these really are small tractors with the kinds of features found on their four-wheeled cousins and a wide array of equipment. Power harrows, rotary plows, flail mowers, snow throwers, sickle bar mowers, chippers, log splitters, and more. Check out bcsamerica.com to see photos and videos of BCS in action. bcsamerica.com 
And we're back with Alan Gandelman from Main Street Farms in Cortland, New York. Alan, you mentioned when I asked how your business was breaking down that about 20% of your income this year is going to be from the production of a hemp crop. I'm just going to open that up to you. Can you just tell me about that? Yeah. So about a year and a half ago, I got Lyme disease and it was really bad. I didn't know I had it for a long time. I probably could have had it for a couple of years. And I got to the point where last spring, summer, I was barely functional. I wasn't sleeping. My whole body was a complete pain. I had arthritis really bad. I couldn't move. I couldn't get off the couch. I had some memory loss. And so, you know, I was going to doctors and trying to figure out what to do. And I didn't really want to take the antibiotics, that heavy dose of six months of antibiotics. And so I started taking a bunch of herbal supplements and tinctures. Uh, My girlfriend's an herbalist. So she was kind of giving me these uh, Lyme disease herbs and they were helping. And then a former employee of mine who moved to Colorado a couple years ago to grow cannabis, he was back here visiting because he's from Syracuse and he found out I had Lyme disease and he told me that I should try CBD oil. And CBD is a compound in hemp or cannabis. And so he sent me some from Colorado and I started taking it and it started working really quickly. My pain started lessening and I I started feeling a lot better. So he started sending me more CBD oil and I kept taking more. And after a couple months, I felt great. I wasn't hundred percent, but I was functioning at like 80%. And so it was a huge turnaround. And at the same exact time last year, at the kind of the end of the summer, New York state decided that it would allow a small group of farmers to grow industrial hemp. And CBD oil is made from industrial hemp. It doesn't get you high. There's no THC in it, but it has all the same benefits of medical marijuana. And so as soon as that, I heard that announcement right away, I got licensed to grow industrial hemp for this coming year and also registered as a New York state hemp processor. And so what we're doing right now is we're growing, technically it's industrial hemp, and there's three kinds of industrial hemp that people are growing. There's the kind for grain or seeds that you would grow more like a, you know, small grain crop where you would combine it off. Then there's fiber hemp, which is really tall, that also you need to combine a lot of processing equipment. And then there's another variety of hemp that is just starting to kind of come out there And it is more of a cross between industrial hemp and cannabis where they've bred all the THC out. And you grow it like you would grow a vegetable, black plastic, irrigation, transplants. And that's the kind that we're growing. And so we're growing this industrial hemp that has really high amounts of CBD in it and the other cannabinoids that are the healing property of the the cannabis plant. And so what we did... Carly and I decided after we got our license to grow, we were approached by a lot of different processing companies who were starting up in the state and they wanted to sign contracts with us to grow hemp for them. And ultimately, you know, me and Carly thought it would be best if we kind of did our own processing. And so we started kind of the processing side of the farm. And now we're building out a facility to take all of our own hemp and process it into CBD oil. And we've come out with our own 
you know, line of tinctures and salves. It's not marketed as Main Street Farms hemp. It's marketed as head and heel. And we sell it at the farmer's market. And we have a website that we sell it online and we ship it all over the country at this point. And so that's been a really developing part of the farm. And so that's what we're at this year about with the the way the crops break down. And so we'll see how that changes and develops over time. Has learning to grow the hemp been a different process than growing the vegetables or does it kind of fit in pretty seamlessly with as just another crop? It is definitely different because the seeds are extremely expensive. So, you know, they're paying around $2 a seed, for example. And the plants, they're similar in the way that, you know, we're still using the same transplanters and the same tractors and some of the same cultivation, but the fertility is different. The pests, the diseases, we're not even sure what they're going to be. And then the harvesting and you have to dry the crop. You can't just grow this crop and then just say, okay, now what? You know, you have to be able to dry it all down to a specific moisture level and keep it clean and keep the mold off of it. So there's a lot more learning and a lot more on the the harvesting and the handling of the crop than the simple just put the plug in the ground, but then there's all the other stuff that's totally different from vegetables. And if you guys manage that, figuring that out on your own? Have you guys worked with a crop consultant? What, what's been your process there? The process has been me and sometimes Carly traveling around the country for the past 10 months, going to conferences, going to trade shows, visiting farms in Colorado and Oregon mostly, and learning from people who have been doing it out West for, I mean, it's still really new people who've been doing it for two, three years, ever since industrial hemp was legalized through the farm bill in 2014. So it's still a very new thing. Everyone's still developing the varieties. Everyone's still developing their systems, their pests. And so even the people we're visiting all over the country who have been doing it for two or three years, who are breeding the seeds and pretty big operations, they're also still learning. So we've made a lot of connections. And at this point, we're kind of all learning together. I mean, it seems pretty clear that this is a crop where there's a lot to learn. It's not like this is something where you're going to be able to just go out and crack a book. You're not going to get the new organic hemp grower off of your bookshelf and figure out exactly how to do this overnight. Right. There's definitely a lot of risk involved in growing the crop. It's a really expensive crop to grow. For us, we're at a farm scale where I'm comfortable taking on that risk and I'm also comfortable building out our own market for it and building out a processing facility because it is not a small undertaking and there's a lot of regulations around it. And so there is definitely a growing market for CBD oil and hemp specifically, but at the same time, it's a cautious market and it's hard to know which way it's going to go because we're growing the crop like we grow our vegetables, but there's already people that we've seen out there who are growing more of the fiber hemp and then thousand acres at a time and then processing that down into CBD oil. And so now there's every time a different company comes to us to ask if we would grow hemp for them, the prices go lower and lower, right, per acre. And so they're starting to already put farmers against each other. We have people already calling, telling us they want to do futures contracts for the hemp and the prices are ridiculously low. And so there's a certain newness to it where the market is kind of up here. 
And then there's all the processing companies, which I think happens in every industry where they try to turn farmers into commodity serfs, basically, and just run every, the farmer business model is a race to the bottom in general. And so they're trying to race everyone down to the bottom and get the best price possible. And so I, you know, there's definitely a lot of concern that I see around the country when it comes to hemp specifically for CBD oil is crashing the marketplace with everyone trying to get in too big too fast and then just crushing the prices. And I suppose that's one advantage of doing your processing in-house is that you've kind of sidestepped a lot of that. That is, and that's why we made the very conscious decision to do our own processing is to bypass a lot of that. And hopefully we can weather that out because we just don't know what will happen. But, you know, for me personally with Lyme disease, it was such a huge part of my healing process over the last year. And it still is. I still take it every single day, three times a day. I just, it's just one of those things that's really important to me. And that's why we're moving forward with it and taking on that added risk when we could have just been growing more vegetables and doing more wholesale accounts and doing more CSAs. On the Lyme disease front then, to pivot away from the hemp crop here and the CBD oil, what you were describing from last summer, that's pretty serious stuff for a farm owner to be going through. I mean, serious stuff for anybody, but trying to keep a business running through a severe illness is not an easy thing to do. Yeah, it was really, really scary for a while there. And it really made me question, you know, how this business and this farm can function without me. And is that even possible? You know, I'm really lucky because I have Bobcat who does a ton of stuff around the farm. Right now, he mostly manages all of the packing and distribution, the CSA customers and the farmer's market. But, you know, he could definitely take over, but there's just the farm's too big for just one person to do those two jobs. And so I really had to start thinking about how to put the systems in place so that I could run the farm if I had to for just working for a couple hours a day or having the systems in place that I couldn't, if I wasn't around for a week or two, everything would still be okay. And so we did a lot of work on our farm systems on the back end when it comes to the way we do scheduling for planting and harvesting and field seeding and harvesting and all that kind of stuff. And then the way to scale the farm and have the infrastructure and the equipment so that we could train more people how to do it. And we are super lucky right now. And we have been for the past many years, we have amazing, amazing employees and they've really been stepping up into more managerial positions where they're taking responsibility and ownership for different enterprises or different parts of the farm, whether it's, you know, we have someone who's, they're just driving the tractors all day. That's all he does. He comes here, he drives the tractors all day. That's his only job. And then we have someone who's in charge of all the harvesting. And then we have someone who's in charge of all the field planting and the pests and the diseases and cultivating. He does all the cultivating. And so splitting the farm and having people specialize. And then, you know, Bobcat runs the whole pack shed and he tells the crew what to harvest every week. It's all through Google Docs, you know, and then Carly's running the CSA side. And we have an amazing bookkeeper who makes sure all the bills are paid and all the insurance and all the other stuff is taken care of. 
And so I really last year had to create all these job descriptions and an organizational chart of the farm. You know, I met with every employee over the winter who was kind of a long-term year round employee. And we went over the job descriptions and where they saw themselves here over the next few years and what kind of responsibilities they could take on and, you know, how much more we could pay them and really starting to train and delegate out my whole job. Basically I've, I've given my job away. And that was really the only way I could see keeping the farm going while being sick is to do those, make sure the systems were solid and make sure the people were trained how to do them. And to do that, you have to be at a certain scale. You you really can't be a small market garden with 80,000 or $100,000 of your income and sit on the sidelines and pay everyone to do your job for you. You know, that really. I think that would be really difficult. There's just not enough cash flow on that. And so, you know, that really played into our the scale of the farm. I'm a little surprised to hear how much of that delegation you've done considering how diversified your operation is because I think it's one thing to do that on a on a farm that's fairly simple that's maybe got one marketing channel that they're going through or maybe has a few crops that they're growing, but you guys are so diversified. I can't imagine that that process of lining people out on the different jobs and getting people to take responsibility for significant portions of the operation was, was an easy thing to do. No, it was extremely, extremely difficult. Like I said, luckily between me and Bobcat and Carly and our other employees, everyone is just amazing. I think part of it was they saw how sick I was last year. It's not that I didn't want to work. I just couldn't do it. I couldn't go to the farmer's market. I couldn't lift up my cell phone. Uh, let alone a harvest bin full of, you know, 50 pounds of beets. And so I think they realized like this also their job security, you know, they've all been farming for a long time. You know, I think across our whole farm, when you add up all the years of vegetable, organic vegetable experience, we're probably totaling 70, 80 plus years of experience with our farm employees. And so it's not like we took someone fresh and just trained them in a year. You know, these are all mostly people who've come from other farms who farmed for three, four, five years and then found us, you know, locally. And, you know, we pay pretty well. We pay above the living wage for the area to start with. And so we were able to maybe attract some people that have already been trained somewhere else and that came here and saw that this is a growing business and they could have a long-term place as a part of it. Let's talk a little bit about your production model that you're doing in your outdoor production then, because 45 acres of crops is a lot of crops with the kinds of crops that you're talking about here, vegetables, and then the hemp that you're growing similar to a vegetable. And you've scaled up so quickly with that over an eight year period. What kinds of equipment and and systems are you using on your farm? And how did you make decisions about the equipment and the systems that you're using? Because It's not like when you start off with a little one acre market garden and an aquaponics system in a greenhouse that you know what that larger scale production really looks like. Right. That is a great question, Chris. When I first started farming, a couple things happened. I took a year long program. There's a local nonprofit called Groundswell Center for Food and Farming, and they had a sustainable agriculture certificate degree. This is a long time ago. It doesn't, they don't have that anymore. But through that program, I was able to 
network and connect with around Ithaca, you know, it's a college town. It's kind of like Madison or something like that. And surrounding Ithaca is a ton of really good mid-scale or larger organic vegetable farms. And Ithaca has an amazing farmer's market. And so through that program, I was kind of interning on some other farms a little bit here and there. And we were doing on-farm classes and it was really an amazing program. But I got to network and connect with all of the areas, you know, good sized vegetable growers and tour their farm and talk to them and see their equipment and see what everyone was doing and what scales they were operating at and what kind of employees they had. So luckily from the very beginning, I could see all of that stuff for myself and talk to people and ask them questions about it. And so that filled in a lot of the knowledge gap. A lot of the knowledge gap came from listening to your podcast is a huge one. The other thing that in terms of the scale and the equipment is we have every Tuesday, we actually have Taco Tuesdays where a bunch of farmers get together and it rotates between houses and we have dinner once a week or once every two weeks together. And so there's for years, there's been a time and there, you know, several of them are organic vegetable growers. And so there's time and space to talk and to learn from other people. And so when I first started buying equipment, I already had an idea of what kind of equipment a bigger farm would use, what size tractor, and you need a water wheel. And I learned about the Perfecta early on and those kinds of things and was able to just slowly add on equipment year after year. Now, some of the first equipment we're growing out of and we're scaling up, so we're, we're changing systems and our field systems and our tractors are constantly evolving and changing. You know, I used to have two Alice Chalmers G cultivating tractors that we were using for a while and they were too small for our scale. And so now this year we bought a cult crest finger weeder that you sit on and steer, for example. And so the way we do our field production is, you know, we're chisel plow, perfecta, seed plants it was either a you know water wheel transplanter or a mechanical transplanter and then we do a couple acres in black plastic mulch with drip irrigation so we've got you know that equipment and a tractor mounted seeder and you know your basic farm equipment we have a high crop cultivating tractor that we do the plastic bed with and some of the fields with and uh our main three tractors are all brand new Kubotas that I've leased and financed through the dealership because I was tired of dealing with old tractors, honestly, breaking down. And I'm not a mechanic and time to fix them. It just wasn't going to happen. So we're able to train employees actually easier on those new tractors than older tractors that have a lot of quirks to them where you're trying to start them and run them and they're breaking down in the field. And so in terms of production system, it's to me, it's very basic right now and there's a lot of equipment i really want to get out there that we don't have yet but it's expensive like uh we have a scott viner carrot harvester but it's an older one and it kind of works and i want to sell it and i want to buy a new nice new forty thousand dollar carrot harvesting machine and i want to we have a rocky farm in central new york there's a ton of rocks and it's a little bit hilly and i want to buy a kind of one of the stone burying um pillars and bed shapers to kind of leave a better, you know, seed bed for direct seeding. And so there's still some equipment that's, you know, on the list and we're evolving and I want bigger tractors with higher clearance with skinnier tires because we're using tires that came on the Kubotas from the dealership. I mean, they're all set on 60 inch centers for the most part. So everything's standardized, but there's definitely a lot of upgrades to keep making in a slow and 
steady pace. And you mentioned that you financed those three Kubota tractors through the dealership. Have you used a lot of financing on your farm? Is is debt a, a pretty major feature of your operation? Debt is definitely a major feature of the operation. We have uh, FSA loans, you know, from the Farm Service Agency. We started out with the microloan program, which I think capped out at $50,000, which I highly recommend. And then we're on to the regular FSA loans for, uh, you know, all our capital costs. And then, you know, I've really invested all the money. Me and Bobcat have really invested most of the money every year back into the farm to keep it growing, to keep buying equipment, to keep building greenhouses. So I am not debt averse. I think to get to a certain scale, you have to take on debt, but you have to do it very carefully and very wisely and make sure your cash flow can handle it, which takes a lot of learning and a lot of practice. And also, I like to write grants. So over the years, we've gotten a few grants that have really helped us buy equipment. New York State had a beginning farmer grant program. I think they may still have it, but they gave us $50,000 as a program to buy equipment and scale up if we spent $50,000 on equipment. So, you know, there was one year or two year period where I got to spend $100,000 on equipment and then New York State reimbursed me $50,000. And that was huge. Yeah, that was absolutely huge. I mean, that really bumped us really fast. And then when we moved our warehouse to the city of Cortland, because we were in city limits and kind of, a, I don't know, undesirable area or so, but uh, because we're a growing business and we had so many employees, we qualified for this kind of downtown grant and they gave us $33,000 this year to put in another cooler at our warehouse because we need a lot of cold storage space to run this farm year round. And so right now we're building a huge walk-in or drive-in cooler where you can bring the forklift into that'll hold, you know, 400 pallets of vegetables. And then we have another huge cooler at the farm and a tractor trailer cooler and a bunch of small coolers. So you know, those kinds of programs that I've been able to take advantage of have really quickened the pace of our expansion. That's really great. How have you gone about finding out about those kinds of programs? I feel like that's one of the most frequent questions that I see, you know, in the nonprofit sector. And, you know, my wife works for the State Department of Agriculture and she gets that question a lot is, you know, where's the money? Where's, you know, where can I get grants for farming? And because you are talking about not just getting loans, but about getting grants to help you figure this stuff out. How have you gone about accessing those resources? You know, part of the way that I find out about this stuff, there's two ways, right? One is through email that I actually open and read all of the strange newsletters that come across my inbox, whether it's from the Cornell Small Farms Program or New York State Department of Ag and Markets or some other weird, obscure email that when you're a really busy farmer, you're like, oh, forget that, forget that. I'm not going to pay attention to that. So that's one way. The other way is me and Bobcat are really tied into our community. I've been on the board of a lot of different nonprofits. I've ran for political office. I'm on the town farm preservation committees. I'm on all these different county things. Like I spend a lot of time... I guess, volunteering and working with soil and water, working with whoever else on committees and decisions for the future of the county and farming and all that kind of stuff. And those people who I made all these connections with over the years at Cornell, 
at soil and water in the city for just being present and doing my thing and giving back to the community. Those people have really been kind of the instrumental network connections that have helped with a lot of these grant programs. And so if I was out isolated three hours in the middle of nowhere, none of that probably would have happened. I think it's a really good point about, I mean, I think it's really valuable for people to be involved in their community because of the service aspect of it. But I do think it's, it is something that gives back in that way. And we don't always remember to account for that is how important those network connections really are, especially when you're getting started as a farmer, when it's maybe harder to find time to to do that kind of committee work and serve on those boards. I know how important that was for me when I was farming was the connections that I made when I was on the the board of the Moses, the Midwest Organic and Sustainable Education Service and, and involved in other organizations as well. It really does help you find out about what's going on and what's available. Right. It, it really does help. And it also helps that there's two of us, right? It's not just me doing this all by myself. There's also Bobcat. So he's also a super social person. He actually has a band called the Local Farmers Union. And they're, you know, they play at the NOFA conference in New York and they play all over town and he does education. So he's also out and about in Ithaca and Syracuse and Cortland. And so there's really two of us making these connections. And because there's two of us, I can go to these meetings in the middle of the day and Bobcat's still at the farm, making sure everything's going according to plan and everything's happening the way it should be happening. And so that partnership has really opened the doors to having the time for these social connections and kind of building up this social capital. So talk to me about that partnership with Bobcat. Is Are you actually business partners in the farm? We are. He is a part owner of the farm. I started it before he got here, did a year without him. And then uh, he was finishing up his uh, five-year stint as an outdoor environmental educator, and he wasn't sure what he wanted to do next. And, you know, we were college roommates a long time ago. It must have been 18 years ago and uh, stayed friends ever since. And uh, when I was talking to him and I said, sure, you know, come and help me start this farm and we'll farm and do education and we'll see what happens. And he loves working outside. He is a super hard worker. And he said, yeah, sure, let's do this. And he got to the farm, I think it's seven years ago, this August, actually. And uh, the first thing we did is we built a new greenhouse and put an aquaponic system. And we just kept going from there. And what was the process for then bringing him in as a partner in the farm? Because, I mean, did you do that right from the beginning, the first moment that he set foot on the, on the farm? Or was he an employee for a while? How did that work? I don't really remember, Chris, honestly, but the farm is structured as an LLC. Yeah, I probably should know that. But the farm is structured as an LLC. And so it's really not that hard when you're that kind of business structure to give away a percentage of the business or to add someone to your operating agreement. It really was not that complicated. So, Alan, just to take another non sequitur sort of a pivot here. Right now, we're in middle of July, so you guys are planting and cultivating your winter crop of carrots and beets, which is, a you said, a big crop for you guys. You mentioned that you've got a mechanical harvester, that Scott Viner harvester that picks up the carrots and the beets, chops the top off, and drops them into a bin. But you also mentioned you grow a lot of cabbage. There's a lot of heavy things that you're doing here in the fall. How are you guys managing those crops? I mean, that's you've got a huge surge of work 
coming ahead of you in terms of weed control and then just getting all of those crops out of the field once you're done controlling the weeds on them? Yeah, we grow a lot of beets and carrots, probably totaling just those two crops alone or probably around 10 acres or so. And cabbage, yeah, you can maybe throw cabbage into that 10 acres, I guess, maybe a little more. And so, yep, they're planted and they're growing and we're starting to cultivate. And we do that this year with our new cult press cultivator. And so far, it's so good. We're still figuring out how to use that specific piece of equipment. We do have a Scott Miner harvester, but we can never get it to work super efficiently. And so labor-wise, what we do is we're bringing in people from Jamaica on the H-2A visa program. Last year, we had two guys come. We had them come a lot earlier last year. We had them come in June, and they, we taught them how to harvest for the CSA and everything else. But over this winter, we decided, you know, that was too much. You know, having the H-2A people here is kind of a lot of work. You provide them housing, and you bring them to the store. And the ones we had were illiterate. So you can't just, like, drop them off at the store. You, like, go into the store and, like, help them go shopping. And it was a lot of work. So we decided we would bring them in when we really needed them, which was for the fall harvest. And so instead of using the Scott Viner, like, this year, we will, like we did mostly last year, is, we have a big undercutter for one of the tractors and we, you know, undercut the beets and the carrots. And then uh, this year we'll have four people from Jamaica here. They're coming in the next couple of weeks. You know, they'll do some hand weeding, they'll do some others, and then they'll start harvesting the big heavy vegetables. It's a lot to harvest. And we start, you know, hopefully sometime in September, depending on how the season goes. And we're harvesting up until uh, they go home the week before Thanksgiving. And we have, send someone out there with a tractor and an undercutter and a ton of, you know, pallet bins. And that's what they do. They harvest vegetables. They break the tops off and they fill pallet bins all day long, every single day in all the weather conditions. And then we bring those into our coolers, either here at the farm or down in our warehouse. Or last year, we actually had to rent cold storage space at a local produce company because we were just out of space. Alan, with that, we're going to turn to our lightning round. First, we're going to get a quick word from one more sponsor, and then we'll be right back. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is made possible with the perennial support of Vermont Compost Company, makers of Fort V and Fort Light potting mixes. Vermont Compost potting soils are a really special product. I used Vermont Compost Fort V as a blocking mix and a potting soil for over 12 years on my farm, and we grew great transplants with it. I mean really great transplants year after year after year. At a time in the organic movement, we're seeing more and more companies jumping on the bandwagon. Vermont Compost is a reminder of the art and the craft of making potting soil. They mix an incredible diversity of ingredients into the compost that forms the basis of their potting soil, incorporating many kinds of manures along with plant materials and food waste to foster structure and aeration in the compost. I love that their Fort V mix even has chips of blue ocean granite in it and kelp for micronutrients and a little smell of the ocean. One thing I've always appreciated about Vermont Compost is their ability to put out a consistent product year after year, and in something that's subject to as many variables as market farming, it's nice to have something you can count on. VermontCompost.com Alan, what's your favorite tool on the farm? I have a lot of favorite tools, but I think the best tool in the past year for me has been Google Docs. I really like spreadsheets. I really like that all of the people who work on the farm have access to all of the spreadsheets and all of the data. And it gives the way the farm is set up with our field planting schedules, our field maps, and our, we have a Google Forms that you can input harvest records into the field that all filter in by vegetable and by field ID and planting date. 
And so I can actually see what's happening on the whole farm every single day without having to actually be on the farm. And so to me, that's definitely a favorite tool recently is dialing in the systems using Google Docs and creating this kind of workflow so that as I'm busy dealing with the hemp crop and the processing and I'm doing a million other things, I can actually see what's going on and see what anything needs to be changed. And I can see how much food is going to the farmer's market and how much is coming back or how much is going to the CSA and what's being wasted or what's being planted or what's not being planted and where it is in the field. Every single bed of 45 acres has a field ID and a row. And so I know exactly where something is and when it was planted and when it's being harvested. And I really like that kind of top view, I guess you can say, of all the different things that are happening around here. How much work did it take you to get that Google Doc system set up? Because what you're talking about, it's not like it's just there waiting for you to use it. You've, you're talking about making spreadsheets and forms that really work for your farm and your farm situation. Yeah, it's an evolving process. I mean, we're, I happen to like spreadsheets and numbers. So for me, it's fun to play with them. But over the years, we just keep adding and taking away and modifying and say, you know what information we really need is this and let's add this and let's take away that. We never look at this data. Let's just stop collecting it at this point. So it's a work in progress and we're constantly developing the spreadsheets and the information and how the information flows because there was a certain point over the last few years where especially as we're scaling up, it's like, well, how many feet of kale do we need for the CSA if we're going to do it every other week? And how do we figure that out? And you have to keep all these records and you start keeping too much data at a certain point and you can't even process it all, you know? So there's been this fine tuning of coming back each winter and going through all of the spreadsheets and the data and figuring out what's the most important, where are we learning, where can we improve, how are our employees interacting with all of this data and what kind of access do they have. And so it's just a constant work in progress. What's your favorite crop to grow? Oh boy. From my ease of growing crop, my favorite crop would be head lettuce. You grow a lot of head lettuce and it we're always we have head lettuce almost year round. And so because of its reliability here in central New York, it's my favorite crop to grow, but my favorite vegetable is actually uh, beets. I love beets. And finally, if you could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer self one thing, what would it be? If I could go back in time uh, and tell my beginning farmer self one thing, it would probably be to spend more time on other people's farms, whether that was working for them or just volunteering or hanging out or just watching and seeing what was going on and find farms that I could envision myself running 10 years out uh, because I wasn't thinking that way at the time when I was in my you know mid-20s. I was just kind of going year by year and figuring things out. And I think it would have been helpful. I don't know if it's possible, but if at that time I could say, oh, what do I want this to look like in 10 years or 15 years? And let's create a plan to get there. Because instead, it's kind of been year by year, kind of growth and change and changing strategy and selling equipment and buying equipment, which can take up a lot of time, a lot of mental bandwidth. And so it would have been good if I did some of that 10 years ago. 
Alan, thank you so much for being part of the Farmer to Farmer podcast today. That's my pleasure, Chris. All right. So wrapping things up here, I'll say again that this is episode 170 of the Farmer to Farmer podcast. You can find the notes for this show at farmertofarmerpodcast.com by looking on the episodes page or just searching for Fair Share. That's F-A-I-R-S-H-A-R-E, Fair Share. The transcript for this episode is brought to you by Earth Tools, offering the most complete selection of walk-blind farming equipment and high-quality garden tools in North America. And by Osborne Quality Seeds, a dedicated partner for growers. Visit osborneseed.com for high-quality seeds, industry-leading customer service, and fast order fulfillment. Additional funding for transcripts is provided by North Central SARE, providing grants and education to advance innovations in sustainable agriculture. You can get the show notes for every Farmer to Farmer podcast right in your email inbox by signing up for my email newsletter at farmertofarmerpodcast.com. If you like the show, please head on over to iTunes and leave us a review. You can also talk to us in the show notes. You can tell your friends about us on Facebook. We're at Purple Pitchfork on Facebook. And hey, when you talk to our sponsors, please let them know how much you appreciate their support of a resource that you value. You can support the show directly by going to farmertofarmerpodcast.com slash donate. I am working to make the best farming podcast in the world, and you can help right there. Finally, please let me know who you would like to hear from on the show through the suggestions form at farmertofarmerpodcast.com, and I will do my best to get them on the show. Thank you for listening. Be safe out there, and keep the tractor running. 